Hello, everybody. I have a very special episode today with a very special guest who I'm super excited to talk to. Her name is Sarah Hendricks. I first discovered Sarah when I was sort of in the beginning of my autism discovery experience. And I always say that a video of Sarah's on YouTube um, called Girls and Women and Autism, What's the Difference? Pretty much diagnosed me. <laughs> I had my suspicions. I had done a ton of research as we do. Um, but I was still sort of like, could this be the thing? And as soon as I watched this video, I was like, oh, that's it. Um, I, of course, went on to get a formal diagnosis, but I feel like my diagnosis really came from your video, Sarah. So welcome to the podcast. And I'm super excited to talk to you today. Thank you. I, you're welcome. I feel here. I feel a little bit like I'm talking to like a celebrity or something. I'm sort of just like, oh my gosh. Just because you are such an, I think an important and impactful person in my journey. And I did kind of obsess over that video a little bit when I first watched it. I watched it like probably five times over the That's span. That's freaky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's a very autistic thing to do, right? To sort of get yes. hyper-focused on a thing and, and whatever. So- yeah, so I guess I just want to start off by sort of um, having you tell us a little bit about what you do, like what's your role in the autism world, you do some public speaking, you do some writing, so tell us a bit about like who you are and what you do. Uh, well, currently all I do is write books and I diagnose people through a clinic uh, in the UK um and um previously as you correctly say i used to do public speaking and conferences and all of those kind of things uh, but i pretty much stopped doing those a few years ago because i became really unwell um and so now i just hide away behind my computer and i i diagnose people and and, and write and that's that's about it but there's a ton of other stuff i used to do um but i don't know if you need to know about that yeah, well, I'm glad we have those conferences and, and public talks memorialized on things like YouTube so we can all still watch them. That's the beauty of video is like, you don't have to keep going out and doing all of the public speaking things. It can just exist. And you're like, here you go. I did that. And now I'm relaxing at home. <laughs> uh, exactly. exactly. I've yeah. been there. I've done it. I have nothing more to say. There you go. Go watch. That's fine. There you go. Yeah, go watch. And I, I feel like what you've said is just so spot on and so wonderful. And we'll get into kind of um, my thoughts on this particular video. I know you have a few different ones out there but um how many books have you written um I um I think six um yeah six and the last one which was about uh females and autism um is due for the second edition um which is an extended and updated edition is coming out in January so that's what I've been doing for the last six months or so is reading all of the thousands of research papers that are now out there. When I wrote the first edition of the book, there were about 20 that focused on gender in any way at all. 
Um, and now there are there are thousands and thousands and I had to read them all to make sure. Well, not all of them. Of course, I didn't read all of them, but a couple of hundred of them, at least to try and uh, try and um, update myself specifically around uh, females um, and all of those sorts of experiences. So my first book came out about nine years ago, I think. Um, and as I said, there was about 20 papers. Now we've got papers on breastfeeding for autistic women. We've got papers on like really niche, little tiny pieces of autistic women's lives. Uh, and in nine years, that's that's just ballooned into this huge amount of information that just wasn't there at all. So things have changed phenomenally for, for, for women, particularly um, in, in those years. Yes. Yeah, there is quite a shift happening, which is amazing. Um, I feel like people who have publicly spoken about their experience as an autistic female have really helped uh, move that shift along because there are so many of us out there who were just sort of floating around and feeling weird and different and like we couldn't get it right and all of the things that that you describe in the video um so wonderfully and um I can tell you're a words person because you are uh, you're very good at at um conveying a point and and sort of articulating it in a way that's very like relatable and understandable and um whenever I've watched this video I get that that feeling of just like it's a it's a very like comforting feeling of like wow I'm not alone and there are other people who have experienced this sort of not just the things I currently experience, but the whole life experience. Um, you know, you start by talking about childhood and how um, girls present so differently from from boys and how um, the teen and adult years can bring on very specific types of struggles for girls and young women. Um, and I related to so much of all of those things, you know, as far as like, being sort of just like a bookworm and not really knowing how to socialize very well and being seen as like, you know, precocious and shy and, you know, reading at a very young age, writing at a very young age. Um, and I guess I want to talk a little bit about the, the school years, both elementary, middle, high school, um, and sort of how, what your experience was like for those who haven't seen the video. Um, and we can sort of compare and contrast because I feel like there is a lot we have in common um, and a few differences. Yeah, I'm quite a bit older than you for a start. So I guess my childhood was have been in a different decade than yours, I'm quite sure. Yeah, what year were you born? 68. 68, so you're about 11 years older than me. All right. Yeah, okay. I was born 79. So okay. yeah, okay. <laughs> so there's a bit of an age gap there. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, what was my childhood like? Um, I uh, obviously grew up in England. Um, I was a tomboy, uh, very much so. Um, 
I had a much, much older brother and sister, 15 and 16 years older than me. And so uh, my parents were older uh, in uh, than was typical at the time um, to, to be having a, a child, a, a later child. Um, I was I was gifted. I was considered to be gifted. Not that that was a thing in the 1970s that, that I was aware of. Um, I was super, super bright, but considered kind of lazy and sort of messed around a lot and was... Uh, I don't know. I think I could. I, I had the beginning of my lifelong passion for crafting and making stuff, which has never left me. I'm a serial, serial crafter. Um, I had a small number of friends. I think probably looking back at those friends now, some of them were very likely neurodiverse. And that's that's kind of what we see across the board. Um, my birthday parties consisted of some um, very elderly people that were friends of my parents coming round and playing cards with their adult children. So there was me who maybe of eight or nine and maybe another seven or eight people, all which I don't know, they may have been from 25 up to 60 or 70. Um, and we would play cards um, and, and have a birthday tea. And every year I would be asked what I wanted for my birthday. And I would say that that's what I, I wanted to happen. These people to come around and, and we would all play cards together. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was super gangly. I was useless at sport, um, apart from running, because I was hugely tall and could run quicker than everybody else. But everything else, team games, that kind of stuff, oh, just just dreadful. Um, I didn't get on with the girls, really confused me. I remember um, at junior school, which sort of eight, you know, 11-ish, something like that, when the girls were just starting to get into interested in boys. And there was very much this separation that the girls would would kind of, you know, hang out and giggle and do girly things. And then the boys were just completely oblivious and were just piling on top of each other and running around. And 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 I was with them. And I think sometimes the girls perhaps were a little bit jealous because I was allowed to be with the boys. But I think it's because the boys thought I was one of them. I certainly wasn't trying to gain their affection in in any way um, I was just a gangly lump people always mistook me for a boy uh, and they still do um, I, I, I have a very male energy if you like um, uh, very much so and always 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 have done um, I don't know what else you want to know I'll, I'll stop there oh that was yeah that was perfect um, I think all of that rings so true to me and probably to a lot of the the women out there listening um, where it's like the, the word tomboy, I feel like resonates with a lot of us. Um, I don't know if people still use that word as much anymore, but like definitely growing up, I was considered a tomboy, um, very much relating to older people too. Um, there were, I grew up kind of in the country, but there were some kids around in the neighborhood, but I would prefer to go hang out with the the elderly neighbors that lived across the street. Um, they had a large collection of magnets on their refrigerator that I really liked to go over and organize and sort for them. <laughs> yeah, I remember and, the organizing uh, of my mother's sewing collection <laughs> and, and oh, everything. 
yes my mom oh yeah my mom had one of those um round she was a sewer too and she had a is that a word sewer seamstress I don't know um and she had one of those round things it's a pin cushion and it looks yeah, like yeah. a tomato mm-hmm. um and she had all of these different colored pins and I remember sorting them into different lines by color it's just when you look back and you're like oh like to me those types of things were just like things that I did as a child I never I never thought of them as odd you know things mm-hmm. like being obsessed with words and re actually sitting down and reading the dictionary. Like most people just use the dictionary to look words up where I would sit down and physically go through the dictionary and be like, Oh, that's a cool word. And then, you know, just like reading it, like it's a book, which is now I look back and I'm like, okay, that's a little bit odd. I I guess probably kids don't usually do that. Um, So I think in hindsight, looking back, it's more obvious to me than it was in the moment because I never I never felt odd as a child. Um, I started to feel that more when I got into adolescence. As you said, things start to shift and change and there's a lot more expectations. Um, Things aren't set up for you in the same way. You don't have your parents facilitating friendships for you anymore. You're supposed to hang out with people your own age. You're supposed to have all of these certain experiences and interests and you start to feel like, oh gosh, like, I don't really know how to do any of this. And it starts to get really awkward really quickly. And you mentioned in the video how um, there have been speculations of like people saying that maybe the autism doesn't show up in girls until like the teen years, or maybe it's not as noticeable until the teen years. I mean, it's always there, obviously, but like there's a higher incidence of, of it sort of becoming more apparent in those those years and there were some really interesting things that you talked about about the teen years um that I also really related to it seems like we were the same type of teenager as well a little bit reckless um not being very good at knowing who to trust who not to trust not good at making decisions about what sorts of behaviors to engage in not really knowing how to navigate things appropriately sometimes getting into situations that could be dangerous you know things like that um that all rang very true to me as well yeah absolutely Uh, yeah I just not having a clue really but I think as you say about not feeling odd I suppose I suppose there just wasn't any any framework for oddness to 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 compare to There, there was no opportunity for any of this kind of diagnosis or even very much self reflection therapy any of that was wasn't really available to, to to me in in those years and and I and I did have I did have friends and I was liked I was um I was a clown and and I would do the crazy stuff because that made people laugh at me and kind of like me so I did the crazy stuff that got me into trouble with my with my mum in, and I knew it would get me into trouble with my mum, but uh, but I sort of didn't care because I had an audience, and and that it, it, and I I felt that all the way through my life that sometimes I've I've not had a lot of substance, and I've kind of got by by being funny and having this sort of surface level amusement, uh, and I think that was very much the case as a as a teenager. Um, uh, yeah, I, I had a very girly friend. 
Um, and I was almost like her bodyguard. So whenever any boy caused her any trouble, I would go and hit him. Um, and I sort of saw this, uh, and it's a bit of a moralistic thing almost, I think, which obviously a lot of autistic people are very strong on the principles. And, and so I would defend her um, against these terrible boys that treated her badly. Um, I, I was, yeah, she she was, you know, she had makeup and nice hair and, and I, I was, uh, yeah, just this, this, uh, this androgynous thing that kind of clomped around being very uncoordinated, far too tall. Yeah, was was a very, yeah, different person. And, and I think, as you said about the sort of vulnerability, um, I think if if anyone, if any, any male showed me any attention, um, I was just kind of grateful that it was almost as though I could say to the world, look, somebody picked me um and obviously i i later realized that that you know there was no real selection process going on there they were just picking me because i said yes and that uh, so i i was pretty promiscuous i was pretty risky but but it was it was never in a yeah a kind of i don't know what the right word to use is a sort of flirtatious or a an obvious overtly sexual way for me it was simply oh he asked me so I said yeah and and it was it was as kind of logical as that really rather than and yeah and, and definitely a, a a feeling of oh just that if somebody liked me then then the rest of the world will think oh okay she's you know she's attractive or cool or or whatever so it was really sad I think really sad and yeah, I ended up in situations that I just thought, why on earth am I here? This is doing, this is nothing to me. But um, yeah. and I think also there's the whole boundaries thing. And do I, am I allowed to say no? And what right do I have to say no? Um, okay, yeah, what, whatever. And that's, that's pretty, pretty sad. And I, I, I hate to think of, uh, of, of people continuing to go through that. Um, and, and I hope, that perhaps this earlier diagnosis will prevent some people from from having to feel that way yeah yeah that whole time I was just nodding my head so emphatically because it's like <laughs> same same like I I had lots of relationships dated lots of different guys it was like if someone asked you out or showed an interest yeah it was very much like you're not listening to your own desires there you're not like oh I like this boy and this is a good relationship for me or like really even thinking about any of the things that you should be thinking about it's just like oh like you said this person chose me this person likes me you know they asked me out yeah I'll say yes it's just like um you know this is how I ended up married and divorced two times um me and too then, yeah <laughs> and I'm with a baby like, at 19 <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so I had a baby at 17 yeah where it was like um yeah sure like everything was just sort of um I guess I didn't really have I didn't have any self-awareness I know that mm -hmm. that has taken me many years to sort of people are like I've had people say to me oh there's no way you could be autistic you're so self-aware I'm like well I'm 44 years old you don't know how long and how much work it took me to become the self-aware you look at 25 year old melissa and i don't know what the hell i was doing which end was up um no self-awareness and no like 
critical thinking skills when it came to life circumstances. It was like, I could sit down and figure out a very logical problem, but life isn't logical. Social interactions, dating, all of that is so nuanced where it's like, it was all lost on me. I was just like, well, I don't know. I guess in this circumstance, you say yes with, with um, my, my first husband, it was like, well, um, oops, I got pregnant and we're having a baby together. And he asked me to marry him. And so you say, yes, you know, my second husband, it was like, we were dating for three years and I'd always heard like, oh, well, after three years, usually people get married and he asked me. And so I said, yes. And it's like, it's always like the logical, like, oh, okay, well, I guess if I don't say yes, then what? Like we break up. So I guess I'll say yes and we'll get married. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, looking back, I'm like, man, I had no clue. I had no guidance. Um, because as we say, like, often this type of thing runs in families. And I feel like um, if you're autistic, you probably also have at least one autistic parent, if not two mm -hmm. autistic parents. And I, I often wondered, you know, if other autistic people have the same experience that I do about feeling like my parents were also kind of lost and not really able to to guide me in a lot of the ways that I needed to be guided because they also were having a hard time themselves figuring the world out you know yeah yeah absolutely I think something that's can you say about that self-awareness and um I think I was I can't remember exactly when but I was diagnosed in my early 40s after having written several books on autism and still not spotting it in myself um it is um and it's still a journey it's it still it's still and, and I think that self-awareness comes maybe from being quite logical and analytical naturally but also then trying to marry that up with what you're experiencing in the world and from other people and then continually trying to go is this a good course of action for me have I done this before how did it pan out then it, it feels like this continual kind of forensic mission of of trying to learn from your mistakes trying to realize that sometimes what people say is true is not and okay, what am I going to do with that? So there's just absolute kind of constant analysis. And and what what I what I wondered listening to you talking about the decisions about being married twice was was about this alexithymia kind of stuff and 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 this and not actually accurately and easily accessing how one might feel about being asked to be married for example the, the way you described it was you know was very matter of fact and very theoretical and I know that's very much something that that I I'm known to do is to talk about things that other people would find very emotive personal things but but present them in 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 a very matter of fact way and I, I think I wonder if that's a, a thing that you've you've come across for yourself in actually having no clue about how I feel about something that the the logic kind of comes first um, and then the the feelings and are not always there easily and accessibly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for me, yeah, that has shown up quite a bit in my life. Um and then sometimes it's it's sort of also like a delayed processing issue where I won't know how I really feel about something until way later, sometimes years later. It's very odd. Um, 
but there's so many times in my life where it's like a month later, I'll feel something a couple of weeks later, I'll feel something about something that happened. And I'm like, in the moment, I'm just like, eh, I, I'm ambivalent, or I don't really know how I feel about it, or I don't really have a feeling about it. Um, and then later on, it'll hit me and I'll be like, oh, wait, this thing. Um, Sometimes it's just too late if somebody's treated you badly. It, it exactly. Like I, I sometimes feel like I really should feel something about this situation. I'm quite sure that the way this person is treating me is really not great. I really should be angry about this. But there's nothing there. There's mm -hmm. absolutely nothing there. And I have I have said that if it wasn't for my very delayed or non-existent emotional memory, I'm I'm sure I would have left many relationships much quicker because I've actually <laughs> forgotten <laughs> how badly I've maybe been treated because I don't have that real emotional sense of it happening. I theoretically know it happened and I can recall that, but I mm -hmm don't recall the emotions with it a lot of the time um, unless it's very big and and you know really really appalling and dreadful but there's a lot of I think I should be annoyed I think I should be offended yeah but by the time I'm offended it's too late for me to go hey no that's not right. <laughs> you can't so go I end up just three weeks later <laughs> yeah just yeah. it must be really weird just sort of sitting there and people I don't know insulting you or saying things to you and you just don't react it's it's very odd. It must be very odd to, to watch that you are. Yeah. yeah. Not I've screaming always, and shouting or something. Yeah. I've always been a little bit envious of people who can have those like snap reactions to things mm -hmm. where it's like something happens and they're like, wait, that's not right. Or wait, blah, blah. And you're like, how do you know to react like that? It's just amazing to me. Whereas for <laughs> me, I like take it in and I'm just like, Hmm. And like you said, by the time you process it and you're like, well, that was really kind of messed up and I don't really like that. And it's like three weeks later and you're like, well, there's nothing I can do about it now because it would yeah, be very been friendly to that person for the past yeah. three weeks. It's going to be really <laughs> weird if you suddenly go, right, that's it. We're done. <laughs> Remember that thing you said three weeks ago, yeah. which they've forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. The, the delayed processing thing for me has been, has been really quite tricky or can come off, um, particularly in, in relationships, not just like romantic relationships, but like long-term friendships and things like that, it can come across as like, um, you know, sometimes people are like, well, why didn't you bring this up sooner? And it's hard to explain, like, I didn't know this soon. I didn't know I felt this way sooner. Like it took me a while to get here. So here I am a month later, <laughs> sorry, where yeah. it seems really weird to people when they're like, why are you just bringing this up now? And it's like, well, sorry, that's just the way my brain works, you know? Yes, absolutely. Very much a weird thing. Um, Another topic, I don't know if it's something you've covered in your podcast, which is um, thinking about your age and my age is, is, um, is this, what's been quite a new thing in terms of autism is, um, is this understanding of the potential differences in menopause um, for, for autistic women. Um, and that I think for me has been such a, incredible life-changing experience which has really brought a lot of this alexithymia stuff into uh, into into focus i think um along with the brain fog and the madness and all of those kind of things that have come with it um and i think i think we're going to see thinking about parents as well that you know you talked about your own neurodiverse parents my mine certainly were too 
And when I think about what they went through, my mom particularly being a late a late mum with me, menopause stuff, you, you I, I have a lot of a lot of compassion for that. Um yeah, to have to put up with a vile teenager when you're going through all that stuff yourself um is 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 pretty tough. Um and I think this is going to be the next big um uncovering for for autistic females is 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 menopause. Yeah. Um, for sure. I haven't done too much um, research or, or even really thought about that topic too much, to be honest. So that's, yeah, that's really interesting. It's coming up for me soon, I'm sure, within the next decade or so. Hold on tight. Yeah. <laughs> Although um, some I people just... go, I have a couple of autistic friends and they didn't even notice. They just went straight the way through, didn't notice at all. Um, for me, it was yeah. horrific. Um, but out the other side, is incredible so just hang on in there and pile on through and watch the carbs yeah. and uh, watch the carbs <laughs> yeah oh my gosh I would yeah I would love to kind of dig into that topic a little bit and and yeah do some research on that because I know I have talked to people about certain other um times in life like pregnancy or postpartum mm. or you know how PMS can be different for us but yeah. um, menopause sort of falls into kind of those same categories of just like hormonal changes and how those yeah. can like affect us so much differently than than the average population yeah. and it know? very much certainly from a diagnostic perspective um it's been weird you know maybe you you know how sometimes you you keep hearing things and go you know and going oh I wonder if that's connected and then it just goes and you don't even think about it but numerous times over the years I have said why are all of these women in their 40s coming for diagnosis why is that is that menopause I don't know I didn't know anything about it I wasn't in it it was not interesting to me at all but that very much is a thing. There is something I think, and I, I think that's about to be researched in quite a big way. There's a big worldwide study on menopause and autism, I think, taking place at the moment. Um, is is there's something about getting to that sort of mid-40s? Your estrogen is running away from you. You've been weird all your life. You've been trying really hard to fit in and to do what you're supposed to do, and you are tired and you just don't care anymore and you are pissed off and and now is the time to maybe your kids have left home maybe you know your your families your, your parents uh, you know passing or whatever there's something about that time it's almost like this double whammy of autism plus plus menopause hormones um which is leading people to go i'm done here and a yeah. lot of women come for diagnosis and and you say to them, well, why are you here? Why, why now? What's happening? And they say, I know this is who I am. I need and I say, well, OK, why are you here? Just self-diagnose. Off you go. And they say, I need permission to be me. I need someone to say, yes, you're right. Now go live your best life. And and they they need that from someone else. And in a way, I think that's sort of sad that, that you, you can't just give yourself that permission that, that you have to come and find a stranger and say you know okay I give you permission yeah <laughs> off, off you go but there is definitely something interesting around that age group they are predominantly right. the number of people that certainly I've seen coming forward for diagnosis I mean beyond the kids obviously which is somebody else's choice 
but it's very much the women the kids are being diagnosed husband partner whoever is being diagnosed and they're sifting their way through decades of therapy self-help books this doesn't work this doesn't work this doesn't work oh I'm still broken oh I'm still rubbish oh this is still weird and then they, they come across this somewhere and then all of the pieces fall into place and they go oh thank god and it's like you said it's about not being alone which I think you know the stuff online has been so powerful for people to to just know and and lots of people have said you know they've watched my video videos by other autistic people and said how did you know you have just described my life this is so weird and there, there are these incredible similarities I think in in how people have been and coped um so yeah the the middle-aged autistic we're going to take over the world at some point soon yeah definitely yeah I think it's exactly like you said it's like it's just the accumulation of so many years of of trying and failing to to fit in to be quote-unquote normal to to have the the experiences that everyone else are you know is having around you and and getting tired and not being able to do it anymore and um all the pressures and yeah it's it's extremely extremely difficult when you finally get to that point and you're like ah and you you know something is is happening or something's going on or whatever I mean for me it was just I just had to go to google and be like start researching my symptoms the things that were going on with me that were getting increasingly unmanageable you know where I was just like this is all coming to a head where things I used to be able to like suppress or put away or mask um it was getting so much harder to do so and it was like what's going on with me and all of the research led me to the same conclusions on the internet and I was like wait and at this point it was like I mean I have two autistic children um we now believe now yeah okay yeah I figured (laughs) it's like um where it's like you know you you feel like for me at least I felt a little bit um like once the light bulb went on I was like huh how could I not have known this? Because especially having like my, my daughter got her diagnosis at eight years old and seeing a lot of the similarities there um, where I was just like, I chalked that up to like, she's my daughter and we're just similar in certain ways. I never was like, Oh, well, we're both autistic. Like, <laughs> um, and same with my son um, where you, you know, for me, I felt kind of stupid for not knowing after I knew I was like, Oh, so obvious. Um, it was the same thing when I realized I was gay though. It was like, Oh, this whole time that makes so much sense. But in the moment you can't see it. Maybe it's the delayed processing. (laughs) Um, but also when you talk about someone giving you permission, I felt very much the same way where it was like, Oh, I know I could just say this is me and and move on with my life and whatever. But I, to me, it felt very important to get a diagnosis and to have that validation. And I think for a lot of us, it just comes from so many years of feeling like you're getting everything wrong and people telling you you're wrong and people telling you, Oh no, you're not feeling that. Or, Oh, you're being too sensitive or misdiagnosis 
you know, that happens. I had a psychiatrist tell me once that I was bipolar and put me on lithium and that went horribly. And I was like, okay, uh, well, I'm not bipolar. <laughs> so I think it's just so many years of like, I think you gain a bit of like mistrust in yourself and your own perceptions okay. of yourself, of the world. And it's, I think for many of us, it's just like, I need someone to tell me that I'm right because I've gotten it. I feel like I just have gotten it wrong so many times. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a lot of mistrust and in, in, in your decision making and, and, and some of it rightfully so, I would say personally that I make some very poor rubbish decisions because mm -hmm. it all seems like a good idea at the time. So yeah, I think I think this is you can't trust your emotions, you yeah, you're as you say, dismissed or frowned at or disapproved of sort of all, all the way all the way through. I think um one of the best pieces of advice I got from a, a coach she wasn't an autism specific coach um and, and she she told me that I needed to be disappointing and this was this was a wonderful piece of advice that she she asked me if I was often disappointed and I said yes I'm often disappointed by people they they don't match my you know they don't do what they say they're going to do they you know they're flaky they 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 just don't put as much effort in as I perceive that, that I put in. Um, and she said, well, you know, how do you cope with that? And I said, oh, you know, really winds me up. It really annoys me. But, you know, I get over it. I move on. And she said, yeah, and so will they. So you need to start being more disappointing. Um, and for me, as a lifelong people pleaser, this was this was horrific. It made me feel sick in my stomach. The idea that I would say no to somebody without giving a good reason, that I I wouldn't have to lie to get myself out of of some you know people's demands. And and I, she said, well, you know, give it a try. Just just now, you know, now and again, just small small things. Just start just start stating your needs. Just start saying no. I don't want to do that, or I can't do that. Um, and I remember the first time I did it was by email to somebody. I think they'd asked me to, I don't know, to do a talk or something. And I, I didn't want to go and I didn't want to do it. And, and in the past, I, you know, I probably would have agreed. And, and then I'd have felt awful. And then I'd have been really angry at myself. And, you know, God, it's going to take me hours. And, oh, it's, you know, it's going to be really hard. Um, and I just remember sending this email that just said, no, I'm sorry, um, I can't, I can't do that. And and I cowered behind the screen, kind of waiting for some terrible explosion to happen, thinking that this person was going to you know, reply to me, scream at me, or just go, right, that's it, you're, you're done, you're finished, whatever. And they just wrote back and just went, oh, yeah, okay, no problem, fine. And, yeah. it, and it was kind of like, oh, no, no bomb went off, nothing bad happened there. And it, it was, it was, again, it has to be logical. It was very much the first part. And I think this was very much this kind of menopausal time that allowed me to do this. I don't know if I could have done it when I was a bit younger, personally, mm -hmm. other people can, I'm sure, to, to be able to not care quite so much if, if I've, uh, you know, if I've done something that people don't want it's not even about offending them or upsetting them that's not something that I would naturally do but just to put my own needs before theirs and and I I think this feels like something really effortful for a lot of us to to have to logically say well they're allowed to say no so therefore I'm allowed to say no and that's a process I have to do almost every time people say no yeah. to me therefore I'm allowed to say no to them and I, I think that's 
a valuable thing that's come out of this, that I am much more disappointing than I used to be in the past. And I want a T-shirt that says, I am disappointing. <laughs> it feels like a great mantra which <laughs> in the world to go around, not, not deliberately, not harmfully, but just disappointing people in the way that, you know, we all disappoint each other in a normal kind of fashion. So I think yeah. that's what we should all be. I think we should take over the world and all be disappointing. Yeah, let's rebrand that word. We can spin it into something positive instead of a negative, right? It's like just yeah, yeah. That's uh, I've I that's fully... Christmas sorted. That's it. Gifts yeah, for everyone. Exactly. Sure. Gifts for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> say I'm disappointing, and you know I feel like that concept is really hard for a lot of us autistic people because we are so much. I think the people pleasing can come from a lot of different things, but I think it can come from like, um, for me personally, it's like feeling like you, you don't fit in. Like when, like, I guess it's hard to say no or to set boundaries sometimes because you're like, I don't want to make this person think I don't like them or that I'm difficult or that I'm, you know, like you want people to like you because it's, it's hard to get, it feels to me like, oh, it's hard for me to get people to like me. So if someone's like, oh, do you want to go to this place? Do you want to do this thing? Um, where it's like, I think it also I feels like this sense of not knowing what's reasonable mm. and not knowing what I'm allowed to do or not do in a friendship, yeah. for example, am I allowed to say I don't want to come shopping with you or do this thing with you? So I, I think for me, as much as being liked, it was just wanting to do what everybody else was allowed to do, but not knowing the rules. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's totally. Yeah, I feel like that is a huge part of it. Not knowing because that's the thing that comes up for me in friendships a lot where it's like, is this an OK thing to do or say? Like, <laughs> Uh, I can't really like I don't want this person to think I don't like them if I say no to like doing a thing I, st I still want them to invite me next time like maybe next time I'll feel like going but just not this time and it's mm -hmm. hard to like I mean now that I know I'm autistic and my friends know I'm autistic it's easier now to be like to sort of I think that's one of the benefits of figuring this out about yourself um, is having the permission to be like I am autistic and like now I feel more permission to kind of set those those sorts of boundaries and I can tell my friends mm -hmm. and there can be a reason behind maybe why some things don't jive with me or why I have to say no to mm -hmm. certain things um it's a few of the anecdotal things that came up in your your video that were really funny to me um that you sort of talked about towards the end of the video was um how it never occurs to you to invite other people somewhere with you. And I relate to that so hard where you're like, it would never occur to me to um, invite a friend shopping with me or like, and I'm like, oh my God, that's so me because so often I just enjoy doing that kind of stuff on my own. If there's another person with me, it adds like a weird pressure to the situation where I'm like, you know, you, you, I sort of feel like I can't just do what naturally is 
is comfortable for me. It's like, I have to consider this other person and yeah. whether or not they're having a good time and we have to shop. And, and what are the rules talk. are? What are the rules what, when what you are go the shopping? Rules? Are we yeah. supposed to do it together? Or are we supposed to split up? <laughs> or what, what am I, what, what, what are you expecting? And it, yeah, it's back to the rules and stuff. My partner, Keith, who's autistic too, we, every single thing that we do, which involves other people, involves this, this kind of debrief, beforehand to go okay what shall we do now what shall I tell them when do we arrive what do we bring what are they expecting of us I don't know what we're going to do how are we going to leave so we we can't ever just go anywhere we've we've all got to have a sort of contingency plan of, yeah. of like okay let's not do that because that will be weird so okay right and, and we, we have to kind of work it out and you know don't say that because that's weird and I won't say this it's a very odd situation. I don't think most people have any clue about how much effort that's gone into us planning just to go to leave the house or, you know, go out for a drink with some people or something. There's a there's a huge yeah. military plan in place for us to to try and behave ourselves. And then afterwards, I'll say, I spoke too much, didn't I? I talked too much. And he'd go, no, no, you were fine. It's OK. Oh, yeah. that went well. Great. Oh, that was awful. <laughs> yes, it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's so funny yeah my partner and I have the same sort of dynamic and I mean it's now that I found this out about myself it wasn't too long after that that we started also looking at my partner and being like mm, you know this might be a thing for you too and maybe that's why um we have clicked like this relationship oh, is just like just see it all the time yeah we're just like click and like it's it's always felt you talk a little bit about your your husband in the video and how it's just like that's the one person who you can just like be yourself with and feel safe around and it's uh, yeah. so the same with my partner where it's like this is the first relationship I've had where it's all of my quirks are embraced and they they get it like and I get their quirks and we sort of just like give each other space and we're, mm -hmm. you know it's just like it's a very different dynamic and I feel like it's really it's really special and you know a lot of us art autistic people are like drawn to each other I think for those reasons where it's like well no one else can understand this except someone else who is living it you know and it's just yeah. sort of like and, and when we're diagnosing children now it's always a question to ask um I, I was in a diagnosis the other day with a with a youngish child about five or six years of age and the parents said that this child had two friends, two friends in the class and had absolutely no interest in anyone else in the whole class. And my question was, why those two? And, and the parents said they're both autistic. Yeah. And that's the interesting question is, is not why not everyone else, but why those two? And it, even at that very young age, yeah, he was five or six or something like that. He knew on some level they all knew these these three kids that they yeah that they were they were the tribe and it, you just see it every single time mm -hmm. with with diagnosing kids is is they always are friends with with the other children who have some neurodivergence or some difference in in some way it's a radar they know yeah even, even without knowing they know um and yeah. that's incredible so why would it be any different when we grow up we just we're just more comfortable with with people that are on some sort of similar wavelength you know, yeah pretty, blunt, just, pretty straightforward no yeah. hidden agendas not complicated uh-huh just so easy Keith it's and I often, vibe, well, yeah. I often say that everybody else finds us difficult but we find each other easy 
Uh, and we find e everybody else difficult, but, but again, you know, find each other easy. But to the rest of the world, you know, we're a pain individually. Um, but, but, you know, to us, he, he's the easiest person, whereas, you know, other people think he's really complicated and different. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful way to describe it. And yeah, I just, oh, I love that. That just... Yeah, like I said, you're you're so good with words. Oh, thank <laughs> so, you. I started so to speak full sentences at nine months, apparently, so I probably never stopped. Yeah, um. yeah, same. Very talkative. <laughs> um, yeah, I have a a little bit of a a funny story about. We'll wrap up soon. I'm like looking at the clock, and I'm like, oh. I could talk to you for four more hours, but we won't. Neither one of us would make it through that. I don't think. Um, funny story about being drawn to people who are also autistic though my best friend since sixth grade best friend in the whole world she and I immediately clicked and just became lifelong best friends um and the way you describe friendships in the video too rings very true to how she and I operate as friends um we're not super clingy with each other we don't do everything together we have mm. very um very planned um uh, interactions and things, you know, like it's, it's just so, it's so neurodivergent. And it's funny because when I first started, um, seeking a diagnosis and I was waiting and I was like on the list and I pretty much knew I was autistic already, but again, needed that validation. And I was like, Oh, I have to tell Monica about this, um, my friend. And so I called her to tell her and we start talking and she goes, you know, before I could even tell her my news, she said, I have something to ask you. She goes, I was with my therapist, the same therapist she's been seeing for years. And she's like, um, she mentioned to me that she thinks that I might be autistic. And she's like, what do you think about that? And I was like, I can't believe you're saying this to me right now. <laughs> I was like, the reason I called you was because like, I'm on the waiting list to get an autism diagnosis. And she was like, what? And it was just like such a bizarre moment of both of us being like, realizing this thing where it's like, oh. Um, so I thought, I always think about that. And I'm like, that's such a funny um like coincidence that that happened in our lives at like around the same time yeah um, my my two closest show. friends we I've known them for more than 20 years each and none of us knew anything about autism when we met each other but they're the only people throughout my life that I've kind of kept hold of and one by one, we've all individually, completely independently had had autism diagnoses. So it's, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. It's the ones that, it's the needles in the haystack and we find them and they find us and they stick. Whereas other people kind of maybe come and go and it doesn't quite work out or you fall out with them or it's just like, whoa, it's too much. The ones yeah. that stick, I, I, I don't really have, no, I don't have a single non-neurodiverse friend, no. Or yeah. in my life. no that's yeah lots of little needles in haystacks I keep finding them but not very many of them yeah you pick them up along the way I always say I have good ASD dar now where it's like some people mm. say they have gay dar I'm like this is mm. my ASD dar I feel like I can I can kind of pick people out now where I'm like that's an autistic person for sure um <laughs> and uh I don't know it feels a little bit like a superpower in a way where I'm like should I tell them 
Should I just wait for them to figure it out on their own? <laughs> Probably that. Not everybody's quite ready yet. Exactly. Yeah. Where it's like, hmm. Um, I did tell my mom that I about my suspicions about her. My mom and I are pretty close. And I was like, hey, mom, uh, you might want to look at this. She immediately agreed with me, though. She was like, oh, yeah, you're probably right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, so I didn't get to touch on everything I wanted to talk about with you because there's just so much. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but it's been we've been chatting for a good amount of time. So I know it's late where you're at. You're in France right now. I am. Yes. You you live in France. I live in France. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, that sounds lovely. It's very lovely. <laughs> I've never been to France, but I just went to England for the first time this past summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was great. And we were going to try and make it to France during our trip, but we didn't make it over there. And I'm like, I think I just want to do France as like its own trip, though, because there's a lot yeah. to see there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. How'd you end up in France? I've always felt more comfortable in foreign countries than in my own. Um, and I think that's the thing where where some of us end up with partners who are of a different language or culture or end up living in different countries. Um, I've, I've seen that a lot over, over the years. I don't think it's ever been researched, but I think it's a thing um, because here I'm forgiven. Um, nobody thinks I'm weird. They just think I'm English. Mm-hmm. And um I have no hope of picking up the nuances of this huge culture and people that have lived in it all of their lives. So I don't even have to try. So I, I don't have to beat myself up about my failures. I'm probably rude and offensive accidentally all the time, but nobody minds because I'm just English. So yeah. it's a very safe place to be. Um, yeah, and it has all the things that are really important to me, which is like food and life and outdoors um it's a it's a slightly different culture different society i mean obviously not perfect many many problems here as everywhere but certainly um um uh yeah more focus on enjoying life than on making money and going shopping and spending money which certainly britain is a is a little bit focused on that kind of kind of thing The, the french just don't open their shops when they don't want to because they're having a, a nice lunch with their family or something they, they just value food in a way that that is not my experience of living in the UK quite so much oh, I love that I also value food and it's you know warm. my oh I love warm oh my partner and I, I mean I live in but you're in you're in a warm place yes um yeah. I'm in California where it's like it's a mixed bag here where I'm at. It gets very hot in the summer, but kind of cold in the winter. Lately, it's been like in the 60s, which I know like isn't super cold for some people, but I get cold very easily. I prefer yeah, warm that's weather. That's about what it is here. That's, you know, it's not like the UK. It's, that's, it's cold and wet there and here. It's just, it's lovely. I live in a tiny village of weird people um, and it suits me absolutely perfectly. It's, it's Oh my God. I love that. Okay, you're making me want to explore this idea because it's it's funny. My partner and I have been talking a lot lately about when we both retire and mm. you know in the next couple of decades here, um, moving somewhere else. Um, There's getting, a lot of Americans living in France. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I feel like uh, the idea of of living in somewhere culturally different and not having permission not to blend in is just like one more reason to add to the list of like why we should get out of America 
along with the cost of living here and the a lot of other things that are going really really mm. wrong mm. Uh, in this country <laughs> um yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah we'll see that remains to be seen but um yeah thank you so much for talking with me this has been lovely maybe we can do it again sometime like I said I have 400,000 questions for you but we'll leave it at this today and uh yeah what's the name of your new book that's coming out that's a very good question I think it's the same name as the other one but it's been slightly updated uh, I think it's called women and girls on the autism spectrum from childhood like to old age or something or something. I'm pretty rubbish at selling my <laughs> stuff because I can't remember <laughs> what they're called. Uh, yeah, it's, it's something like that. Um, but yeah, Where's the best place me. to find all of your things? Do you have a website? Is it on Amazon? No, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I mean, it's on all the books, you know, normal booksellers and things like that. Um, I think uh -huh. you can pre-order it and it will be out in January. The first edition was about I think about 70,000 words and this one is about 110,000 words so it's been not only lengthened but all of the old stuff has been taken away because obviously all the research some of it is outdated now and new stuff yeah. put in so hopefully it is good value uh, and I've just signed two book contracts this week for two new books to come out um and I asked my publisher if I was allowed to talk about them um but I didn't get a reply for her from her so I probably better not <laughs> yeah <laughs> but oh, they won't okay. be out for another couple of years so um yeah yeah but, yeah well so when you're ready to talk about those or announce those just let me know and I can tell everyone about them because I'm sure Excellent. your books are great I've never read one of your books I just obsessively watched your videos um <laughs> <laughs> but I will definitely get this this new book that's coming out. And, and will... it'll be on Kindle and Audible and things if, you know, paper yeah. is, is, is not, not your thing or whatever. But yeah, hopefully it is. Um, yeah, and I'm very grateful. The first one I'm told sold over 45,000 copies, which I think mm. is a lot for something that's fairly kind of niche, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah I'm, I'm delighted and grateful for all of all of those and that they've let me update it and write a new one so um that's going to be a new adventure Amazing. for about yeah nine years or so so that's scary and exciting all at the same time oh wow yeah Ooh, that is exciting I didn't realize it had been that long so yeah I'm definitely gonna gonna look that up and get it and read it I am a I'm a paper book person I prefer the, mm -hmm. the paper book in my hand mm -hmm. and I love to read. So I will, I'll be picking it up. I'll be talking about it. I'm sure. Um, Thank you. And yeah. Anything else you want to tell us about? Oh, you do autism assessments as well. Do you do those just in the area you live in or do you do remote? No, they're all through um, a clinic uh, in the UK and there are people from all over the world, but I, I just do them remotely. Um, the clinic uh -huh. has premises for diagnosing children um, and, and adults who want to go there face to face, but they also, they're, they're a very forward thinking clinic. Um, they, yeah, it's a very different ethos of diagnosis than this very medical kind of model. Um, it's uh -huh. still a normal diagnosis, but it's it's very much a kind of partnership between the clinician and the individual themselves. It's it's a very a very lovely way of working. It's yeah, it's not tick boxes and this kind of stuff. It's it's a yeah. conversation. Um, yeah. 
Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, everyone that people... works there is wonderful. Everybody's have... neuro... nearly everyone is neurodiverse in this clinic, so we're all kind of odd bods hanging out with other odd bods. Oh, that's good. Takes one to know one. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I have people who listen from all over the world who are always reaching out to me and asking if I know of different resources or places where they could go to potentially get diagnosis. So this would be an option for people who aren't local to you. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want yeah. me to mention their name? Is that yeah. okay to do? Um, they are called Axia, Axia ASD. And they're based in Chester in the UK. And you can find uh-huh. them online and yeah they're very good people cool I think we definitely need more places like that the place that I got my diagnosis through is called grasp and they also have a very um atypical model for diagnosing people it is very very much more like conversational and you know there there are a few tests involved but it's mostly like you know learning about you about your background you know all all of the things that are a little bit more relevant than I think sitting and being like you know do you like trains? Yeah, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> it's like, yeah. no, I don't like trains. Oh, you're not autistic. Um, yeah, sadly so, yeah, sadly that does happen to people. Okay, I'm horrible at wrapping things up, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. <laughs> Let's say thank you again and goodbye. And if anybody has any uh, interest in working with you, I will leave um, the links to that clinic that you work with. Um, in the the show notes and any sort of other um, information that you give me that's okay to distribute publicly. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I just, I loved every minute of talking to Sarah. I could have talked to her for hours more. Um, although I don't know if either one of us could withstand (laughs) a conversation that long being, uh, two autistic women, but honestly, she is, uh, so interesting to me and such a, a wealth of information and just her story is so relatable. If you haven't watched her video on YouTube, I'm going to link it in the show notes along with her other information. Highly recommend that you go check it out, especially if you are a female who has been diagnosed with autism, but I think even males who identify more with the quote-unquote female experience of autism uh, could really get some some good stuff out of that video as well. Um, But yeah, if you guys... uh, Want more content, of course, uh, you can join the Patreon. I'm going to leave links to that in the show notes. You guys know all of the things, the OTJMA store, all of the things you guys can do to support the podcast, which really helps me out um, as this podcast grows and I try and make it something really enjoyable for all of you guys. I really appreciate um, the reciprocation and the support. And again, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Sarah and I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.